Welcome to the Christy Taylor Show. I'm your host, Christy Taylor. Super excited to have you here on today. And here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to meet some amazing people here in the month of July that is going to be talking about some community activism and a very special um, issue that is very um, important to our community is criminal justice reform. And to help me have that conversation, I'm going to bring an amazing gentleman to us today, David L. Garlock. Now, David L. Garlock is a successful returning citizen, reentry professional, and criminal justice reform advocate. David and his brother received 25-year sentences in Alabama after taking the life of their abuser. A client of Equal Justice Initiative, he was released on parole in 2013 after serving more than 13 years and pursuing several educational opportunities while incarcerated. He subsequently obtained his bachelor's degree from Eastern University and is a field organizer for Straight Ahead Organization, or should we say Straight Ahead Org, a new grassroots organization that is working to abolish life without parole sentences. He is also on the board of directors of the National Association for Rational Sex Offender Laws, working to abolish the sex offender registry. He enjoys educating the next generation of criminal justice professionals on rehabilitation and advocating in various spheres for an effective and equitable justice system. He is a frequent speaker at colleges and universities, criminal and social justice conferences, and community events. Now, David, resides in Coltsville, Pennsylvania with his wife and newborn son, where they are dedicated to serving with their local church, Freedom Life. Welcome to the Christy Taylor Show, David Garlock. Thank Hi, you so much. thank you. Thank you for, for having me. It's today. an honor to be here. Well, of course, I have to say that our connection comes through a young lady that is located in Mississippi, Sanitria Freeman, who's going to be having a reentry impact summit where you're going to be one of her guest speakers or keynote speakers. And so I just wanted to make sure we indicated that, but also wanted to find out more about your story. Wow. What a journey you've had in life. So yes. tell me more about, first of all, just your upbringing and then how that has parlayed into your life as an advocate. Well, I mean, my life, you know, if if you were to pull up a picture dictionary and look up the word dysfunctional family, that's what you would have seen with our family. There was a, a lot of uh, abuse, uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Um, my sister, my brother and I were all kicked out in, at different times in our life. And when I was 11 years old, after my brother was kicked out, uh, my brother and I were both sexually abused by this gentleman who had just been released from prison in North Carolina. And mm -hmm. this abuse went on for eight years. And mm -hmm. towards the end of the abuse, it became more physical. And he had tried to kill my brother and me numerous times. So we came up with an irrational decision to take the person's life. And mm -hmm. I was 19 and a half. My brother's 22 and a half when the murder happened. And um, it took him four months to find the body. So for four months, I'm living with the thought process that I had taken somebody's life. And that was some of the hardest time of my life because here I am knowing that I had murdered somebody. And mm -hmm. that whole time was full of drugs, alcohol. I had to stay drunk. I had to stay high because I didn't want to deal with the fact that I had taken somebody's life. So at 20 years old, 24 days after I turned 20, I was arrested in Alabama and I'm thinking I was going to get the death penalty. I'm thinking I'm going to get life without parole. So that first weekend was the hardest time of my life because here mm -hmm. I am thinking when my life is 
supposed to be beginning, here it is ending. In the November 1st, 1999, I was taken over for questioning. I was put in an interrogation room for seven hours. And so I had a lot of time to think about the abuse, the murder, everything that happened. So I confessed to the crime. And after that, the detective was taking me back to the county jail. And on the way, I'm asking him, am I going to get the death penalty? Am I going to get life without parole? And he turns to me. He's like, do you believe in God? I'm thinking, I'm not studying God. What's going to happen to me? But that conversation right there just changed the whole trajectory of my life because When I got back to the county jail, I'd asked for a Bible. And so I got a little New Testament Bible, started reading in Revelations, came to Revelations 320, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and allows me to come in, I will sup with him and he with me. And I just cried out to God. And that just changed the whole trajectory of my life. And I said, Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to take advantage of whatever time I get. And my brother and I, we received a 25 year sentence for the Mm -hmm. offense. Wow, that is a journey. And to know that even in the midst of such an excruciating life experience, that someone in law enforcement introduced Christ to you. Yeah, it was it was not something I was expecting, you know, and uh, it, it was the thing that really changed the, the whole trajectory of my life, you know, and going on from there, you know, I told myself that I was going to do the time instead of letting the time do me. And so there's that thought process that the person that does the time is the person that takes advantage of the different opportunities that are offered at the prison as far as education, drug rehab programs, or just uh, other programs to better themselves. And so I was able to get my GED in the county jail. I was able to get a drafting trade. And I was also able to get a master's of theology through an unaccredited school. And so everything I was doing was to prepare myself. And I wanted to be a, a different David Garlock when I got out. Even if I had to serve all 25 years, I wanted to be a different David Garlock at the end of that sentence. Now, David, that meant that you would have been released if you had served all 25. You would have been in your mid your mid 40s. However, God gave you grace and you were released 13 years. Let's talk about what led to that decision. So when you were talking about 45, uh, both my brother and I, we had court appointed lawyers that really didn't want to do anything for us. You know, Mm -hmm. they really hung us out to dry. Mm-hmm. And when the uh, lawyer came up and told us about the 25 year plea deal that they had just brought to us, they're like, hey, you know, at least if you do all 25 years, you'll still be a young 45. It's like, do I really want to hear that? That I'll be a young 45. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, thank you. Mm-hmm. But um, so Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice Initiative started working with my brother and me in 2008. And um, they couldn't do anything as far as our sentence, but they wanted to assist and help us as far as parole. So they helped both my brother and me with our parole plans. And we both, when we were, were released, we went through their prison uh uh, the reentry program that they had, you know, and so I was released April 1st, 2013. And what a day to be released, you know, April Fool's Day. And there were actually two officers that wanted to joke around and be like, Garlock, your paperwork hasn't come in. You can't go home. I'm like, I'm like, whoa, I do not want to joke around about my freedom now, y'all. Come yes. on. But, uh, I mean, I was able to get out, you know, and mm-hmm. went through their program and I was in their program for nine months. Okay. And the reason when I graduated their program, the next day I flew up to Pennsylvania because I was able to get my parole transfer from Alabama to Pennsylvania to attend college. And so okay. um, 
I, I moved up to Pennsylvania to attend Eastern University. It's a Christian college outside of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And it's the school where Brian Stevenson uh, went for his undergrad. Okay. Okay. So education became extremely important to you. Now, um, growing up, how was education in your home? And what led to you pursuing your education within um, the prison system and afterwards? I mean, education was key, you know. Um, I, I, when I dropped out of high school, I dropped out a semester left with my uh, in my senior year because of the abuse. The abuser forced me to drop out. And I mean, I had a 3.5 GPA. I had some different football scholarships offered from Boise State, Fresno State, and some other di- uh, smaller Division II schools in California. And um, mm-hmm. the, I was really passionate about school, and it mm-hmm. was something that I was always good in. And I mean, it, the abuse caused me to wear different masks, you know, so mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I learned how to act really well, you know, and <laughs> I had a mask for when I was around family members. I had a different mask when I was at school. I had a different mask when I was at church and another yeah. mask when I was Ooh. around the football players and other folks, you know, so I didn't know who I was until I was incarcerated and I was able to get rid of all the masks and I no longer had to hide and and pretend like this stuff wasn't happening. Right. You know, you brought up certain important um, institution in our community and for you to be a young child and teenager in church on a football in a football program, in school, and having to have these different masks, how did you feel as you were growing and reflecting over the adults who apparently didn't pick it up? It, it what was your thoughts about that. It, it was hard, you know, because there there were many times that we wanted to tell people, mm-hmm. but this individual had threatened to kill us, it, mm-hmm. us individually, our family members, you know, and so that's the thing that this individual had. He had this fear over us, and we believed that he would when we were younger, and mm-hmm. as the time went on, you know, this physical abuse happened more and more, you know. There were mm-hmm. times where he would stand out the restaurant we were working at just to see what we were doing, and uh, if we were flirting with a waitress or we were flirting with uh, somebody we were waiting on, when we got home, we got the crap beat out of us, you know? So this was a daily thing where we're just getting beaten up, almost killed on a daily basis. And that's really what led us to commit the murder. And he was also started to molest another 14 year year old boy at this time too. So we had saw, we had seen everything that happened to us begin to happen to him too. And so it was just a conglomeration Mm -hmm. of everything that led to the murder. Just for clarification, where is your um, your mother and your birth father in this process? Well, our mother was out of the picture. Um, she was in it for some. And when we were incarcerated, she wanted us to write her a letter and tell her everything that had happened. Because she had some thoughts that things were happening. Because when the abuse first started with me... It started because the person that abused my brother and me had gone to California where my mom and stepdad were living at that point and brought them back up to Washington. And so he used them as a way to get to me. This was part of his grooming process to bring them up where I would come over and see my mom and my stepdad. And that's when I would be abused. And that's how it all began. And so our mom wanted us to write her a letter. So we wrote her this 30 page letter. 
from mm -hmm. front front and back telling her everything that happened from mm -hmm. the initial abuse with my brother and mm -hmm. it was a couple months after we wrote that that we got a letter from our stepdad that while we while my mom was writing us back she died of a massive heart attack and so she had written me my whole letter and she was mm -hmm. in the middle of writing my brother a letter when she yeah. passed away that's tragic so much tragedy and at the same token you know god can step in as he has and provide you redemption restoration and eventually re-entry can we talk about first of all just some of the life lessons you and your brother because were you all also serving in the same um, institution well, we in Alabama, when we first went to prison, they wouldn't allow family members to be at the same prison because they were scared that um, family members could um, have an unfair advantage uh, amongst other incarcerated people if there was some type of fight or anything. But finally, around 2007, they okay. changed the rules. And so we were able to be at a prison together for about a year, you know, okay. and it was good, you know, it was good catching up and seeing how he was. And um, I mean, he's out doing well, you know, he, he just uh, be got his CDL. And so he's a truck driver okay. now. And so Good. he's really enjoying that. Um, he was um, at the same restaurant for 10 years, you know, and he okay. was the, the manager <laughs> there. So he was able to obtain stable. good employment, stable employment, and what gained a lot of trust from his, the boss, from his, the person that owned the business, you know. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing, you know, both of us have had these work ethics, you know, that we'll do whatever we need to. I mean, my first job when I got out of prison, the first job I had, I had for one day and two hours. And <laughs> it, okay. What was so, that? <laughs> I, I was a dishwasher making $7 and 50 cents an hour. So I went in, I applied for the job on the application. I checked the box. Yes, I have committed a felony. Right. Now, that never came up on the, the interview, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they're like, Hey, come in tonight at four o'clock. You'll start working. So yeah. I went in four o'clock. I worked from four o'clock till 2 a.m. Now this is mm -hmm. after I was doing work at EJI all morning. So right. I had been up since like six that morning and I didn't get home till like three 30 in the morning. Yeah. But so I'm in there, I'm, I'm jamming, I'm washing dishes with one hand. The kitchen manager brought me three different like meals while mm -hmm. I was working because he saw how hard I was working and the, the speed and just the, the fluidity I was working with and he didn't want me to stop. And so when I walked home that night, I felt so good because here I am. I have my first first job. I am going to get a paycheck. It was great. Mm -hmm. The next day I come in I, at 4 o'clock, I store it. At 5.30, the general manager calls me outside. She's like, hey, can I talk to you? I'm like, yes, ma'am. So we go outside. She asked me about my felony background. She's like, "Is this? A, did you have a nonviolent or a violent offense? And so I said I had a violent offense, and I shared my story with her. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but I'm going to have to fire you because we can't have anybody with a violent offense working here. Wow. And so they gave me cash for the like mm -hmm. 12 hours I worked. And two weeks later, I'm walking by this restaurant and the kitchen manager calls me over. I had just obtained another job a week after that where I was mm -hmm. making um, I was washing dishes, making $9 an hour. So this new job, I made a dollar fifty more, more. 
and I was only a dishwasher for three days and I got promoted to uh, yeah. doing soup, salad, appetizers and desserts. Yeah. So this kitchen manager calls me over. He's like, hey, David, how you doing? I'm like, I'm doing good. He's like, you want a job? I'm like, what are you talking about? I thought I couldn't work here. He's like, well, you can. That was the general manager's issues. You know, we don't have a policy like that. So, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, one thing I tell people, you know, when we look at reentry, mm -hmm. the person that has a background, mm -hmm. you don't have to only deal with the issues that a company has. You have to deal with the mm -hmm. individual that a general manager or manager and their biases and right. their dislike, you know. And so that's mm -hmm. why I was fired, not because the oh, company okay. had a policy, mm -hmm. but because this woman didn't like the fact that I had committed a violent offense. Wow, David, that, okay, I don't know where you are with your story and as far as books and things of nature, but what a story you have. Wow, we're going to be coming right back in a moment just to talk about now that you are a advocate and a reentry professional. We'll be right back. You're here on the Christy Taylor Show. I'm Christy Taylor and my special guest, David L. Garlock. And he is a successful reentry professional, a criminal justice reform advocate. And I would love to know from washing dishes to your further education to what you do now, how did that journey happen? Well, that journey happened by my pursuing education and um, when I was able to come up to Eastern University I was able to enroll in college there and the thing is they put my testimony in the school paper the second week I was there and so when I was first told about it I was like, all excited I'm like okay this is great but the day that the paper was actually going to be in the paper in the in the everything about me I've been here for two weeks. How are people going to react? Am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be shunned? But it was so amazing. Everybody received me and loved on me and accepted me. And it was such a, a powerful experience, you know, and it was one of the things that propelled me to be where I am today, you know, and just the acceptance of not only the students, but also the faculty and the professors. And they're the ones that help um, propel me into the work that I do. And so mm -hmm. even while I was in school, you know, one of my professors invited me to, so she was a professor, uh, at Eastern, but she was also teaching at, um, LaSalle University. And so she invited mm -hmm. me to come there to speak to one of her criminal justice classes. Wow. And that, <laughs> Uh, that was such an amazing experience and it opened the door. I got such a, a rush doing it and I loved it so much. And since then I've spoken in probably 30 other universities and wow. it, it's something I love doing because it's about educating the next generation. And a lot of times 
these criminal justice majors have never actually met somebody who's been incarcerated or who what? is doing the work that I'm doing. You know, mm -hmm. there was there was one school I went to that mm -hmm. had, had a criminal justice department for over 20 years and they had never had somebody who had gone to prison come there and speak. And I'm like, how can you have a holistic criminal justice department if you're not having people with lived experiences coming and speaking to your students and so it's something i'd love to do in, in october um uh, i'm on the board of norsal and so we're having uh, our conference in texas and so before then i've set up four different speaking engagements with some universities in texas you know and mm -hmm. I, I i just love the opportunity to to educate and to share my story you know because it's so unique and there's not many people who have my type of experience who yes. are advocating for people who have committed sexual offenses. Most of the people who have my type of story are just advocating for the people who have been harmed and mm. what, what people call victims, you know. But my thing is, you know, Brian Stevenson says you're not as bad as the worst thing you've ever done, you know. Yeah. And so my faith teaches me about grace, teaches me about forgiveness. And mm -hmm. if I forget how can i be forgiven if i don't forgive somebody else you know so i look at these individuals not as what society would call them a sex offender but i look at them as a man or a woman who committed a sexual offense and so changing the narrative is so important you know it labels matter so much i'm not a murderer i'm a man who committed a murder and so that's what we have to do we we have to change the way that we label and we talk about people you know and, and so mm -hmm. i actually went to eastern gonna major in social work but I, I with some guidance i was able to change that into an individualized major so i majored in urban studies focusing on criminal justice and social welfare Okay. Can you say that five times fast? I was about to say that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say it probably two times fast, you know, but it, it's a combination of urban studies, social work and criminal justice. And, and okay. it was uh, amazing, you know. And so when I graduated college, I actually God just opened this door for me to work with people who have committed sexual offenses. So I ran a program for three years working with this population coming out of prison. And wow. it was so powerful, you know, because I was able to live restorative justice. I was able wow. to help them yes. heal yes. In, in powerful ways and mm -hmm. just to see them. That is wow. Because what exactly oftentimes when you're working as a person who was subjected to that type of abuse to actually be a part of the restorative justice for those who are the offenders. What typically are the, the dynamics and the stories that come from that? I mean, the, the stories are powerful, you know, because What a lot of people don't understand is uh, that 35 to 75% of the people that have committed a sexual offense have been abused themselves, you know? And so we all, we all have heard about this theory about the school to prison pipeline. Yes. But I talk about a pipeline that it doesn't get talked about much and it's the trauma to prison pipeline. Mm. So there are so many people that mm. have had these adverse childhood experiences, yes. you know, 
before mm. they've gone to prison. I mean, when I t- first took the ACES test, I scored 10 out of 10. And people are like, mm. wait, you scored 10 out of 10? That is crazy. But that's the amount of trauma that mm. I had experienced in my childhood. And mm-hmm. I mean, the reason that I am where I am today and able to do the work I do mm. today is because of the grace, because yeah. of the mercy, the relationship I have with God and the healing that's transpired. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to do the work I do, especially advocating with and for people who've committed sexual offenses unless I had that healing, you know, and so that healing allows me to work with this population and to advocate for them and to work closely with them and have strong, healthy relationships with these men and women. One of the things that I noted in your bio is that you're actually working with um, organizations that are seeking to, um, even with the registry, can you explain that particular philosophy on why that, that, that is it changing the registry or just ceasing it to exist? It's ceasing for the registry to exist. And, and because why is that? 95% of the sexual offenses that are happening right now are by people who aren't even on the registry. Those, so these are people who have never been arrested for a sexual offense. And so that's the thing, you know, the, the media and our, our, and society has this thing about fear mongering. They want you to believe that anybody who's committed a sexual offense is this monster. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the the rate that they go back to prison, it's only 1.5 to 5.5% for them to commit another sexual offense. Mm-hmm. So the, the rarity of this population to commit another sexual offense is so small. But what the media has done is it has taken individual cases like J, uh, uh, Wetterling's case, Jacob Wetterling, you know, he was a kid that was abducted and killed and the person had committed a sexual offense in the past, you know, and so they take these individual cases and say that this is everybody, everybody who has committed a sexual offense is like this individual. And that's not the case, you know, and I can tell from experience in these relationships I have with these men and women that this is so far from the truth, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I, that's one of the things I feel like my story allows me to have a different platform to discuss these issues and these topics. And so I think it's really Mm -hmm. important to do that. Well, David, this is definitely a complex conversation. We can definitely dive into this and future interviews. I look forward to having you come back and really explore the greater work that you're doing. And speaking of your ability to speak to these stories, you're going to be sharing that right here in, of course, in the Mid-South, Northern Mississippi, Sinitra Freeman. She has invited you to be one of her speakers at the Reentry Impact Summit. First of all, let's talk very quickly about your relationship with that organization and what we can expect when you come. So yeah, I, I've met Sinitra on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook, and we've been chatting for a couple months, you know, and she gave me this wonderful opportunity to, to speak and to be one of the keynote speakers. And because she knows the, the impact that reentry had on me as far as when I came out and going through um, Easter, I mean, uh, EJI's reentry program, and then the work that I've done in reentry. And I'm also involved with uh, Lancaster County Reentry Coalition and Pennsylvania's Reentry Council. So I'm very uh, involved in reentry up here in Pennsylvania. And I think that um, the one thing that 
we do reentry wrong is we typically wait 90 days, 60 days, or 30 days before somebody gets out to start reentry. And that's not the case. We need to begin it before. And so that's one of the things I will be talking about and um, just dispel, dispelling some of the myths about reentry and just the, the impact that um, mm -hmm. the community has on somebody when they reenter. Uh, I mean, uh, the reason I was able to be successful in my reentry was the church I attended, yeah. the support from Equal Justice Initiative. Yes. I the 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 second job I had, not the one I had for a day and two <laughs> two hours, but the second job I had, uh, I went in there and it was at Jubilee Seafood in Montgomery, Alabama, and the uh, the owner's name's Bud Skinner. And I went in. I'm like, hey, I'm looking for a job. Uh, can I get a job as a waiter? He's like, I don't have that type of job open. I have a dishwasher's position open. And I was like, okay. He's like, you got 13 years experience where there's no work. And so I explained the situation. And he said, because you were open and honest, I'm going to give you a job. Mm -hmm. And he had never hired anybody with a background before. So mm -hmm. here it is. He's hiring somebody who committed a murder. You know, it's not just like somebody committed a robbery or right. a theft or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it was so powerful, you know. And mm -hmm. after my time there, when I was getting ready to move up to, to Pennsylvania, he, he called me to his office and He's like, David, I, I want to tell you something. He's like, you could easily be a victim. You could easily have everybody feel sorry for you because of, of the story and what happened to you. He's like, you don't do that. He's like, your mentality where you don't want people to treat you like a victim is going to take you so far in life, you know, and it has, you know, I mean, the, the things I've been able to 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 do the things i've been able to obtain is amazing and incredible and i look forward to continuing to be involved in this sphere and i mean my job now in pa i'm working at straight ahead which is an organization that is trying to abolish life without parole and mm -hmm. to create a, a a geriatric and medical parole because we have 10,600 people in pennsylvania prisons that are over 55 years of age. Wow. Wow. You know, I have, I have a, a personal um, experience with that and I, I, I applaud you for that work and hope that life without parole is something that we can eradicate in this country. Yes. Yes, I, I mean, uh, there's an organization called the Sentencing Project, and, and they, mm -hmm. along with me, have this thought process that we need to cap sentences yeah. at 20 years, you know, because yeah. anything over that it's is abuse. this it's added punishment, torture, yes. Yeah, it's abuse. Thank you so much. Thank you for your work. It's an important work, and thank you for your life journey, and may God's grace continue to shine upon you, your wife, and your newborn. Thank you so much. Yeah, he's he's seven and a half months old. And I, I tell people when I look at him, I'm like, this is what a second chance looks like because yes. I, I could still be in prison for three and a half more years. But here oh I am blessed with a, a tremendous, amazing wife and this newborn that is incredible. Wow. Oh, continued blessings. Continued blessings. And thank you so much for coming to the Christy Taylor Show. Looking forward to meeting you when you come for the Reentry Impact Summit. And uh, thank you. If you want more information about this great organization, be sure to go to msreentry.org. And of course, you can follow David Garlock on all of his social media, Facebook, as well as Twitter. And thank you again for always supporting the Christy Taylor Show.